Justin, can you tell us where we are right now? Well, we're just down the road a bit from Alice Cooper's house. Where are we exactly, though, in geographically speaking? Well, we're in we're in Arizona. Where in Arizona? Um, we're just somewhere around Phoenix area, Paradise huh. Valley area. Have you been here before? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I've been pretty in Arizona beautiful, a few isn't times. It? It's wonderful. Yeah. Now, the reason we're here is we're really excited about season two. And one of the reasons why is because we have a killer lineup of um, <laughs> of people. Yeah, our lineup is pretty amazing this year. This, <laughs> tell you what, and the one of the the big dogs of this uh, season is a guy named Alice Cooper, who we're about to meet. And well, I've I've met him once. I haven't met him. Yeah. So we should set that off right now. Um, but you know, we're walking into a situation here where this guy is a macabre rock icon and I don't know what it's going to be like if, if we're walking into a dungeon and there's going to be scary things or he's going to be a super nice guy <laughs> trust me he's a super nice guy Okay. but he has had a pretty amazing life and is an incredible storyteller and uh, I can't wait to uh, to do this you want to you wanna get going here? yeah let's do it alright alright so Wills here we are season 2 design of yeah. And uh, we're here with Alice Cooper. Alice, welcome to our podcast. And a retro mic. Very yeah, retro. Yeah, it's right, very retro. Right. Looks very 40, 1942 <laughs> War of the Worlds. I, a- I've always been a lead singer in a band, you know, and and became a songwriter. I started out, you know, like any other young band in, in the 60s. Uh, we were 15 years old and the Beatles came along. We were either going to work at the car wash or we were going to do what Dad did, you know. Uh, or we were going to, you know. I, all of a sudden, there was this new option. So when you were 15 years old in 1964, 65, the option was there was suddenly this thing called the Beatles. And then the Rolling Stones. The Yardbirds. And the Kinks. Then all these bands just came out of nowhere. I never saw a band that actually played their instruments and sang at the same time and wrote their own songs. Because, you know, the Four Seasons, somebody wrote those songs. The Beach Boys. That was our music, or Motown, yeah. at that time. And then all of a sudden there was this new sound. Not only was it a new sound, guitar-driven sound, it didn't sound complicated at all. And then we didn't even know what the Beatles looked like. We only knew what they sounded like, which was exciting enough. Then when we saw them, we went, wow. We had the hair and the Beatle right? boots yeah. and the, you know, it was, it was revolutionary to anything and, and our generation was looking for something new. And there it was, the British invasion. So the American bands all started right then. That's when we got our idea, what, what were we gonna do? Your turn! All right. you better know this. We were all in the cross country track team. All the guys in the whole band. You were on the cross country team? I was a four year letterman. 
That's I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, three of the guys, Dennis, Neil, and our Dennis and um, John Spear, our original drummer, and myself, were all four-year lettermen in track and cross country, milers and two milers, and we put this little band together to do a spoof on the Beatles for the Letterman's Club talent show at the high school. Oh, that's and nice. we so found you weren't these, actually a band? No, we found <laughs> these two guys that played guitar and I said, let's let's take a Beatles song and we'll change the lyrics to, uh, I'll beat you, yeah, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was all driven by cross country and track. We, we by the way, were 72 and 0 in cross country. We so had sweet. seven guys on the team that were running sub 440 miles. I was like the sixth guy. Where's your, where's your I was 438, guy? and I was sixth amazing. guy on the team. <laughs> so we killed everybody in cross country. There was nobody even close to us, um, and that was we were kind of the the school's heroes because we were the only state champions. Right? Was this in the Phoenix area? And, yeah, Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, anyways, once we hired the girls to scream for us <laughs> in the cafeteria, yeah, it was like immediate like. Wow. We actually had two guitar players that really could play. They, these guys were two greasers. One guy was in every fight after school there was, but he played guitar. And the other guy was just this pure, I mean, this kid was like a Bowery boy, uh, Glenn Buxton, who yeah. ended up being our lead guitar player. The Earwigs, that was the name of the original band, started rehearsing after after track practice or we would get him to learn a couple of easy songs start playing parties you know so we like a classic garage band like Cla oh yeah. we, we were the best garage band <laughs> we could play and you know any garage crap there was so had you sung before that no you're just like I'm gonna no. go for it no but I learned I just yeah. learned yeah. I, just, I was a good mimic I could yeah. copy people and pretty soon the band was now the spiders we were the number one band in Phoenix we could play any Rolling Stone song, any Yardbird song, any Kink song, and we were like making four hundred dollars a piece a weekend. We were filling the, you know, the, yeah. all the local places, and then we ended up going. Of course, every band couldn't make it in Phoenix. You could only get so big in Phoenix. Yeah. Then you had to go to L.A. So we went to L.A. and starved like any other band, <laughs> and ended up changing our name to Alice Cooper. We said, "What's a name that will just..." piss off every parent in America, you know, to no end. Because we already were doing the theatrics. It was natural for us to do the theatrics. I don't know where they came from. Alice is a perfect example of, like, just an insanely creative person who found his outlet, and now he's just going to run with it. Yeah, I think what was really fascinating is he's a designer, fine artist, performance artist, musician, you know, he, he does all these things without a team of art directors, designers, and producers. It's just him and his band doing it all themselves. Three of us were art majors. Okay. And so we incorporated a little Salvador Dali, and we, uh, you know, a little of this, a little of that, a little West Side Story, a little horror, and pretty soon this, this Alice Cooper character was born. And we realized that we just did not fit into the hippie thing at all. I said, what's missing in rock and roll? What's missing is a grand villain. I said, we have all the Peter Pans you want. There's no Captain Hook. 
I said, why not de design Alice as Captain Hook, but a rock version of it? He's horror. He's he's Moriarty. Yeah. He's all of these really. And his name is Alice Cooper. That's the best And part. he has black makeup on, and he has a snake, and he has a guillotine, and all this. And it was so outrageous. But so much fun to watch. And that didn't fit into L.A. at all. So we, had, we were basically more notorious than famous in L.A. And we played one, one big concert one time. It was... the. Uh, at the Cheetah Club, and it was 6,000 people, biggest audience we ever played to. Wow. And it was Lenny Bruce's birthday party, it was called. <laughs> the Doors, Jefferson Airplane, yeah. all this, and we- Come on, we they were, were all there? They, all, they, all the old bands played, and they put us on at the end. Now you have to remember, everybody's on acid and everybody's going groovy. <laughs> oh, you know, don't you want somebody to love? Don't you? Oh, that's great. And then all of a sudden these up lights come on. We started out with this song called Out in the Street by The Who that was... And the audience was like, it was like springtime for Hitler. <laughs> and in two songs, we cleared the building. Out in the street. They just left. People were running for the doors <laughs> because they were all on acid. And there was this horrific thing up there called Alice Cooper, and it looked like a puppet. And it was, was not nice at all. Yeah. It was threatening. And the only people left was Frank Zappa, uh, my manager, it, Chef right? Gordon, yeah. And they all stood there and Frank Zappa says, whatever that is, I want that on my record company. <laughs> there was never a point where somebody says, maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> it was so, always yes. It was always, maybe that's not enough. We finally got a gig at the Whiskey A Go Go. Finally, you know, that was like yeah. years of just starving. <laughs> and we get to the whiskey and we're taking pictures to show our friends back in Phoenix, you know. And it says, Alice Cooper and who's Led Zeppelin? Oh, man. No way. And I said, Led Zeppelin? Who's that? And we got there and they showed, they showed up. And as soon as they showed up, I looked at the guitar player and I went, that guy used to be in the Yardbirds, <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Page. Yeah. And I said, well, we'll open for you. And they said, we've got the flu so bad. You know, you guys open tonight, we'll open tomorrow night. So we traded off who opened That's for right. who. The very next night, we got the, a gig at the Cheetah Club. Alice Cooper and who's Pink Floyd? <laughs> you know, they ran out of money and moved in with us. So we got Alice Cooper and Pink Floyd living in the same house together, sharing cornflakes, basically. Yeah. Um, now, at this point, did you feel as a group that you you were, you know, your sound was kind of coming together? And well, yeah, we had a sound. We had a sound that just did not jive with what was going on with anybody else. Now, the next stage of this was this. Frank Zappa decided that he was going to record us. Um, the day before, this was it, we met, and this all happened within two days. We were living at the Chambers Brothers. Remember that band that time, time has come today? Oh yeah. All these black guys yeah. from Watts who really liked us. They were, they were good friends. They said, well, we have a house in Watts. You guys can stay in the basement. Rehearse there and everything. I said, fine, that's great. Yeah. During the riots, during the Watts oh, wow. riots, 
So we're down there and we're rehearsing every day and we're playing and they're great, you know, we're, we're living together and it was really cool, very cool situation. Jimi Hendrix used to come over to the house to see the Chambers Brothers. Jimi Hendrix was buying his marijuana from Shep Gordon, our manager, <laughs> who wasn't our manager yet. So, so was, was Jimmy famous at this point yet? Oh yeah, okay. Jimmy was Jimmy. Okay. And, you know, we met him. We met him. He listened to us play and everything. Oh, cool. And he went to Shep, who was a young Jewish guy from New York. And he says, Shep, you're going to get busted. He says, because you're dealing grass here. You're a young guy and you have a lot of money. And the police are looking for that because they know that's what a dealer is. He says, you're Jewish. You're from New York. You should be a manager. And Shep goes, okay. <laughs> he said, I got this band that you should listen to. So he brought us to the, uh, the Landmark Hotel. We walk, the door opens up. And I can't see from here to where you are, two feet away. Because yeah. the smoke is so thick. <laughs> now, you remember now, this is 1967, 68. Yeah. It was extremely, extremely against the law in Los yeah. Angeles. They kind of left this place alone because all the bands lived there. Yeah, yeah. And I finally parted <laughs> the smoke, and on the couch there's Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison. Oh my gosh! All the guys are there. Jeez. And Shep Gordon, this guy Shep Gordon, and he goes, "Hey, I'm, I'm Shep. You know, how are you? Uh, guess I'm your manager." <laughs> and I went, "Okay." You hear all the time about how potentially damaging a bad relationship with a manager can be for a musician or really any artist. I mean, with the Kesha lawsuit this year and the biopic of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and the issues that he had with his manager, it's just super refreshing to hear how much Alice trusts his manager and vice versa. In fact, two years ago, a great documentary came out called Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. If you want to watch a great documentary and even learn a little bit more about Alice and his career, check it out. Shep is still my manager. 47 wow. years later, he's still my manager. And I think I heard you tell a story. Is it true that you guys don't have a contract? It's still Still a don't have a contract. Still, he's my best friend, you know. So, um, he's a Jewish Buddhist, and I'm about as far away from that as you yeah. could possibly get being a Christian boy, you know. Um, and yet, we have the best relationship you could ever have. I would trust him with my family, with my children, with everything. Uh, so that's the bond we have. And, and, and it, that doesn't exist anywhere, anywhere in the arts yeah. where you have a manager that you don't have any. Has, she has total control of the money. Mm -hmm. I have total control of the art. Mm -hmm. And I never ever go to him and say, how much did we make? How are we doing? He comes to me and says, we did this, we did this, we did this, we invested this here, we put this here, we put that there. And I went, okay. That's mm -hmm. great. And that's the bond we have. But you talk about the creative process, you grow into it. We sat and we listened to Beatle records and saw how it was constructed. We went, oh, okay, I see you go from this to a bridge that sets up the chorus. The chorus is what really sells the record. That's where the title of the song is usually, in that chorus. Mm -hmm. And that's how we learned how to write. Um, now you find that the bands that were closer to the Beatles, there are generations then, then there's, a, then there's a generation that started copying us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's a generation that started copying the bands that copied us. Mm -hmm. So 
the bands closest to the Beatles wrote the best songs. <laughs> the next generation wrote okay songs. The next generation's were meh. Basically getting to the point where now it's all tech, techno. Right, yeah. There's no song there anymore. Because during that period, weren't the Beatles and like the Beach Boys just brilliant? Absolutely. Yeah, Those songs still work. If you listen to, if you take a 16-year-old kid right now and play him a Beatles album or a Jimi Hendrix album, or, I mean, the real songwriters, the Beach Boys, the Four Seasons, the Beatles, Burt Bacharach. Mm-hmm. They all had hits during those times. And why do those songs, why are they hits? Because you hear them once and you know them. You know the song. It's simplicity. I started, I finally got, we finally got with a producer. We made two albums with Frank Zappa that were underground Made Who a little, wrote your songs? Made you a little songs? We wrote all the songs, okay. the band, you know. Um, and it was all hit and miss stuff. Somebody would write a great riff and we'd write something around it and a lyric worked in. But it was all learning how to write. It was very mathematical. Here's four beat, here's four bars. I've got to get this message in that four bars and it's got to rhyme and then bring me to this section, that's got to rhyme. And then it's got to pay off on the chorus. And then you got to go back to the verse. It's very mathematical how it works out. You only have so many syllables you can get in there, make them clever and make them work. So the, the, the lyric process is, I find myself being very mathematical on that, and I'm not very good at math. I just have to make it sound right. And Do you make feel it you're work. a good songwriter? Yeah. Well, I mean... Right at this moment during the interview, it was great. Alice just shrugged his shoulders at us, points around to all the gold and platinum records on his wall, and he goes... I became a good songwriter. Yeah. I became a good lyricist and a good songwriter because I did so much of it. You know, for every, there's 12 songs on each one of these albums that are published and out, and they're platinum, you know. Now, for every one band on there, there's 10 songs in the garbage can. Yeah. So there's probably 4,000 <laughs> songs written. Yeah. 400 of them actually got to record. And Bob Ezrin came in and he says, we're gonna not play for six months. We had a farm there that we rehearsed at. We're going to relearn everything. Now we're going to learn how to write a song. You guys have millions of great ideas, pieces of ideas, but they're not songs. This guy was coming from a classical background. Yeah. Sat down. He was our George Martin. We sat down and started putting songs together. And Love It to Death then came out, which was top five record. Uh, 18 was like a, a major hit anthem. After that, Killer came out. It was voted the best album of 1968 as a rock album. And from then, you know, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, Welcome to My Nightmare, all those albums were platinum albums. And it was because we listened. For one, this is the craziest thing. We wouldn't listen to anybody. We figured nobody understands us. Our power is the fact that we are not like everybody else. So let's stay there. Bob Ezrin said, good, but I'm gonna put it into a form that will get played on the radio. Hmm. Once you get played on the radio, they can't stop you. We were showing off how the guitar players and all that, and Bob would sit there and he'd go, dumb it down. And we go, what do you mean? He says, it's gotta be dumb. It's gotta be dumb, 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 dumb. It's gonna be like a sledgehammer. It, the, the point of this song, I'm 18 and I like it, is it's a punk anthem, but 
it sounds great on the radio. And CKLW was the biggest station, and it was out of Windsor, but it covered the entire Midwest. It was the biggest station in the country. And it just so happened that the program director's son loved Alice Cooper. <laughs> and this record, they, they get 20 records a month. Yeah. They're going to play one that goes onto the playlist. And this song came on, and actually, the uh, Rosalie, who was the program director, heard it and went, that is really different. And she put it on Possible Hits. It was or something like that, you know. A segment or whatever. And we're driving along to rehearsal, and this song comes on between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Oh, jeez. 18. And car stopped on its own. <laughs> you know? The car was even shocked yeah. by it. And we, we looked at each other and went, well, it's a pick hit. If it never ever gets played again, we heard it on the radio. Yeah, that's the so greatest. Cool. And we just went to rehearsal that day and went. <sighs> then the next day we're driving and gets played again, gets played again, gets played again. And now it's not a pick hit; it's charted. <laughs> the, the golden key in our business is a top forty hit. Now that the, the suits. The money guys, all the guys that really run the business, not the kids who just listen, the people that run the business, I all go, what? Because it's, it's money in their ears. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's a hit, now we've got to get one of those kind of bands on our label. You know, now we need to copy Alice Cooper. If the song gets to number one, now you've got the diamond key. Now you are not just a hit, you are the trend. You've trended now everything's trending to you you know hmm. so this outrage and it was tr we would feed the press the worst <laughs> stories things that we never had we never had to do anything because we just they they made it up anyways just like they, alice cooper propaganda oh they stuff. wanted alice cooper to be the worst thing ever every parent hated us and the more they hated <laughs> us the more the kids loved us you know and and we would start feeding them stories <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. really horrific stories of just laughing our heads off because people were buying it. Schools Out came as a as a desk, the same kind of desk you would have in school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was an album, you could open it up like this, and inside, instead of a record sleeve, there was a pair of panties <laughs> that covered the record. Yeah. Okay. We just, you know, now we are... You know, You're the worst. We are yeah, the yeah, worst yeah. people You're of all time. We looked at it this way. If you were 13, 14 years old, and on Monday morning you'd lift up your desk, and the kid next to you lift your desk, and you could provide a pair of panties. <laughs> you were the man. <laughs> <laughs> Our audience was not the core audience. Mm -hmm. Our audience was the lunatic fringe. <laughs> and there were millions of them. All these kids that didn't fit in, mm -hmm. that was our audience. Now, if you would have told me that the Beatles would have loved our records, I would have gone, you're so out of your mind. The fact that the Beatles ever even heard your record is, that's so outrageous, come on. Because <laughs> they you were know? like your heroes, right? They're your inspiration. Are you kidding? Yeah. The Beatles were like on a, a high pedestal, you couldn't even see the pedestal, it was so high and Dylan and the Stones and all of a sudden you're reading articles and they're going yeah that new Alice Cooper record is great and da 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 
<laughs> they listened to our records. I mean, that was a shock to us. I feel amazing. Yeah. That they listened to our records. And then you meet these guys, and they treat you like just like, you know, like, oh, you're one of us. Okay, hold on know? a second. Are you mean to tell me that you got to know and meet the Beatles? Oh, it's, uh, they were our, in a lot of cases, some of our best friends. Oh, so Paul cool. McCartney and I are like really good friends. But back then, John Lennon loved Alice Cooper. When Elected came out, he was very political. That was his favorite record, was, elect, was Elected. It was number one in England, the record wow. was. And he thought it was like a political you know, ref, yeah. revolution. And we drank a lot together, you know, John and I did, you know. Um, there's a lot of pictures in here of John and I drinking together. Yeah. Um, and McCartney became a good friend. Ringo became a good friend. George was a little offish. He, he never, you know. Yeah. He, he was, but the Stones were good friends, wow. and all the guys that were our idols were now treating us as buddy buddy. We were one of them. That had to feel amazing. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. I'm still like, you know, like <laughs> that. Picture this: standing in a kitchen. If so, just this one snapshot, holding a loaded 38 on Elvis Presley. Okay, how did we get there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like in awe. Like, how do we get So you have a loaded gun pointing at Elvis Presley? Yes. Okay. I got a call saying, uh, Elvis wants to meet you about 1971, 72. And I went, great, I'd love to go meet Elvis in, in Las Vegas. I went there, got in the elevator, and there's four people in the elevator. Myself. Chubby Checker. It's random. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Liza Minnelli <laughs> and Linda Loveless. Wow. Wow. Okay. Good lineup. Yeah. Three of us left that night. Oh, it almost sounds like you set me up for a joke. No. Just, you know, yeah. one, one stayed the rest of the night. I don't know what Elvis and Chubby Checker did all night, but that's the joke. Linda yeah. Loveless yeah. was there. <laughs> <laughs> but we got up there. They checked us all for guns, which is silly because there's guns everywhere once you get in. Yeah. You know. And we're sitting there talking, and Elvis walks in the room, and Elvis is Elvis then. He's not fat Elvis, he's not drugged Elvis, he's Elvis. Black leather, you know, the wow. real deal. Awesome yeah. Elvis. And yeah. he walks in, and he said, you're the cat with a snake, ain't you? Yeah, said, that's cool, man. I dig that. I see no that. way. He said, that's really cool. He says, hey, man, you're from Detroit, right? Yeah. He said, come on in here. He said, I want to show you something. And he says, open that drawer. And I open the drawer. He says, West Smith and Wesson 38. He said, pick that up. And I, being from Detroit, pick it up and I would go to unload it. It's got, it's full, it's loaded. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he said, oh, so I'll keep it loaded. It's all right. He said, I'm going to show you how to take a gun out of somebody's hand. Oh, so there man. I am. I got the gun on Elvis. <laughs> and little devil on the side, you know, goes, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, what? Right. Kill him. Well, what a great publicity stunt, you know? The little angel goes, no, no, don't kill him. Don't kill Wound him. him. Yeah. <laughs> the angel's going, please shoot him. Yeah. You know, it'll be the greatest story of all time. Before I could do anything, the gun was out of my hand. And I'm on the ground, and this boot is in my throat. That's great, Elvis. Can I get up now? <laughs> and it was just, you know, some karate mood that he showed me. He didn't hurt me, but he showed me how to do it. And I got to be good friends with him. I realized, though, at that point, I never wanted to be as big as him. Hmm. He had no life. Hmm. He had zero life. The, the colonel pretty much controlled everything. He, if he left, there was eight guys with him. And he was Elvis, I understood that. Yeah. So the thing that got me was, he says, you wanna see my most prized possession? I went, 
yeah. 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 And he says, come on in here and go in the bedroom. And I close the door. Now I'm in a bedroom with Elvis Presley and I don't know this guy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he sit down there. And I, he opens the drawer and he takes out these x-rays. And he says, oh. he said, I was leaving the place and went out in the back garage where nobody knows, you know, how we get out of here. And there's three guys that want to fight me. And I called off my boys and I fought all three of these guys. And I, he's like, broke the guy's ankle right here and he shows me the x-ray. He said, swung around, hit this guy in the jaw, and broke his jaw like that. He said, that's right there, right there. This was his prized possession. Hmm. And this is his only contact with the outside world. Wow. And I went, wow. I said, are you kidding me? And I, I got it at that point that I don't ever want to be that big. Yeah. Because wow. he was a prisoner. This, he could have anything he wanted mm -hmm. in this giant penthouse. Anything. Any girl, any drug any food, anything. If you put anybody in a luxurious jail like that and say you can have anything you want, you'll find a way to kill yourself. The mid-60s and early 70s were such an incredible time in the history of music. You have all of these timeless musicians together, sharing ideas, pushing each other. In a lot of ways, it laid the foundation for what music looks like today. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Beasts of Burden by the Rolling Stones in the car, and it just completely transformed my view on music and what was possible. And for me, when I first heard the original Beatles songs and then listened to the rest of their catalog, I was just blown away. What an incredible time to be a musician. But it was because the records were good. The songs were good. Yeah. If we would have been dumb, if the songs would have been not very good, they would have just fluffed it off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, reading, I'm reading Rolling Stone. I get a call and they said, did you see what Dylan said? And I go, what, what? You know, Bob Dylan? Yeah called you the, the most underrated songwriter in the world. Bob Dylan said <laughs> that about me? So how did you get to your show ideas? Because, you know, in a lot of ways, those are the things that people wrote about or remembered you, just yeah. sort of your outrageous shows. Well, we, we would go to a show and we'd go to see The Who. And The Who, windmill and smashing the guitars, and Keith Moon was like the best drummer I ever saw. And, Pete Townsend was the most exciting guitar player on stage because knuckles were bleeding. Yeah. You know, and I went, wow. <laughs> but behind them was an empty canvas. Hmm. And I went, why isn't anybody using the stage? There's no theatrics in this. I said, what if we did that? We started out with, you know, we built our own guillotine. We built our own this and that. And, and that was so outrageous because it was just like, you know, anything was was outrageous because n nobody had ever done anything on stage. So the most dangerous thing was the fact that we had money now <laughs> and we could build a stage. So with Billion Dollar Babies, we built this, it looked like a 30s Busby Berkeley stage. And it was like, nobody had ever used uplighting. Nobody had ever used very lights before on stage. Mm. So the audience gets there and it goes, <laughs> It was like a gigantic jewel up there. And then this band comes on and makes it all work, you know. And that was then Arena Rock was born yeah. right there. To keep going, you couldn't just stop because somebody else was going to take your place if you stopped. And my next idea was Welcome to My Nightmare. Welcome to my nightmare. And I said, Billion Dollar Babies is just touted as the biggest stage show ever. Nobody will ever be bigger. Let's top it ourselves. <laughs> Let's take all the money we made from Billion Dollar Babies, put it into Nightmare, 
and make it so that it's now history. Nobody will ever, the band goes, uh, you know, because they were ready for a break. Yeah. They wanted to split the money up. I understood that. I totally got it. And the band separated. We didn't break up, we separated. One guy wanted to do another his own album, this guy wanted to do his own album, this guy wanted to do his, everybody wanted to do their own songs. And I had Welcome to My Nightmare in my head. Shep was with me, Bob Ezrin was with me. And it was my first solo project. Ended up being the biggest show. But I mean, it was really a gamble <laughs> because if Mick Jagger broke away from the Stones, yeah. it didn't really work. Yeah. The Stones and Mick Jagger, so a lead singer breaking away from his band is not a good idea. But the show was, we, we hired people from West Side Story. We hired Disney. We hired all these, we put every penny we had into this show. Rehearsed it, that's where Cheryl comes in. We needed four dancers that were gonna be these things coming out of the bed, from under the bed. But I said, they can't be rock dancers. Two guys, two girls, Broadway dancers. And I and I need a ballet. I did not say Mitch. Yeah, I you said I need it. a I need a ballerina for Only Women Bleed. That's a real ballerina. I, I need a, when I'm singing up here in the straight jacket or whatever it is. I want something really pretty going on behind me, something really elegant. And she's in this pink thing floating around, and she's she's a really top-notch ballerina. You know, Joffrey Ballet. Of course, you're also going to be a giant spider, and you're going to be <laughs> <laughs> covered in blood. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. You're going to be nine different things. And yeah. She says the hardest thing she ever did in her life because she had to do nine costume changes, and there was never time to get your breath. So the nightmare show comes out, and it is outrageously the biggest thing anybody had ever seen. But this, by now, people are Alice Cooper was a household name. Yeah, you know, and I was on Johnny Carson. Okay, if you just join us, here to do from the title song from his current album, Lace and Whiskey, Alice Cooper. I'm Inspector Maurice Escargot, the toughest cop in town, and they're all chicken. And they, I, I let kind, kind of let some of the mystery go, because yeah. I realized that this was only going to last so long if people didn't get another side of Alice. So I would go on and I would be a guest on Johnny Carson's show and I'd talk with him and I'd make people laugh, you know? And so I was a regular guest on the show. And people said, oh, he can also talk. I had finally established the fact that I was the terror. I was this guy. And, and he was the ultimate villain. And the Muppets call up and go, can Alice do the Muppet show? <laughs> and I went, Shep, I said, you know. You had to be cracking up. We built this thing up so much. And I watched the Muppets. I love the Muppets. I said, but we can't water it down by doing the Muppet show. And I said, let me see who did the last couple of shows. Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, Peter Sellers. I said, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Cooper. Yes. I, <laughs> let me come right to the point. You, sir, are a demented, sick, degenerate, barbaric, naughty, freako. Why, thank you. Freako's one, civilization zero. And we went and did the show, and it was the best thing we ever did because it opened up the whole world to us now. Wow. Now Alice Cooper was showbiz because, and we never gave up the, you know, what we did. We yeah. never softened it. It's just that now people, we were an entity. 
and they had to accept what was going on with Alice Cooper. It was still outrageous and, and you know. Alice comes from this generation of musicians that never really gave up the dream. They adapt and change, and eventually they just become legendary within their circles. But we were never druggies. We were never known for that. We were never known for anything satanic. We were just this weird vaudeville <laughs> that people sort of really just went, well, he's as acceptable as the Eagles. Yeah. I had as many hit records as they did. So, I mean, they had to accept us as they accepted anybody else. And I think to this day, it's still like that. What about now? What's, what's Alice Cooper doing these days? Getting ready to start a whole new show. We just finished uh, 220 shows with Motley Crue around the world. That was their final tour. And we were their, their guest. We were their uh, special guest. Um, you had to sell out most of the shows. Sold out every show. Yeah. Every show. I think we had 220 consecutive standing ovations. Wow. And it was, it was because this show particularly was one of those shows where it clicked on all eight cylinders. Mm -hmm. Every single night it worked. It, just sometimes that happens. Yeah. Whereas you have lulls in the show and, and high points and low points. In this show, it was, it was a perfect show. Um, and the band is so good. We have a, all the really classic rock guitar players that are really attitude driven. They look great. And then we had this girl guitar player that we brought in named Hurricane Nita Strauss, 27 years old, and plays, she looks like a supermodel and plays like Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Just to make it a little better. You know, whenever yeah. they see her on stage, they go, what is that? I'll go, oh, it's a girl guitar, she'll play rhythm probably and sing. This girl's on her knees playing with her teeth Just behind her head. And as I said, just that one extra shot of, you know, uh, we were talking about, you know, I was saying that that John Lennon compliment, that's his favorite record, Bob Dylan, you know, favorite songwriter and all that. So one of the great, 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 great compliments I got was Groucho Marx came to see Welcome to My Nightmare. And vaudeville, he's vaudeville. Yeah. And at the end they said, well, what did you think? And he goes, Alice Cooper's the last hope for vaudeville. <laughs> wow. And to me, I went, That is Whoa. amazing. Wow. I got to be very good friends with Groucho. Groucho and I were best of friends. Oh, that is so great. So he would bring Jack Benny, George <laughs> Burns, and Fred Astaire, Mae West. We'd be doing the show and look on the sides, and there's, there's these legends. I mean, we're legendary on a level of rock and roll. These are legend legends, and they're watching the show. And George Burns is going, yeah, I remember in 1923, Gracie and I, and you know, Toledo saw the guy do the, uh, the guillotine act like that. And da 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 da. da. <laughs> so what they were seeing was nothing shocking to them. The audience was totally shocked. The old vaudevillians went, oh yeah, wow, the snake thing, yeah, I saw that in 1912, you know, what? You know, with the Three Stooges, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, I remember that show. And they were never shocked by what we did. You know, when the dancers are dancing and they look over and Fred Astaire's watching. And he said, I love the thing where the skeletons disappear and then keep appearing. You know, and our dancers are going, because uh, it's Fred Astaire. Yeah. You get the greatest dancer of all time. Right. But he got it. It's funny, the old timers, 
totally got what we were doing. <laughs> the audience were bewildered. The old timers saw it as vaudeville, but just a different version of it. And that's really what it is. It's vaudeville. We don't mind slipping on a banana peel on stage. If it gets a laugh, do it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> what did your parents think? Well, it's funny because my dad was a pastor. My granddad was an evangelist. I was the, I was the uh, prodigal son. I grew up in the church. Went as far away as you could possibly get. Became the poster boy for everything wrong. <laughs> and then came back to the church. And, but my dad really never saw that. My dad saw me get sober. But there was a point when I was so far gone that I don't know what they were thinking I was. They knew I wasn't satanic. They knew what I was doing. My dad would say, my dad was the coolest guy in the world. He could have been the cover of GQ. He had this white hair that was back. He was an electronics engineer. Sharp dresser he was a or something. He, he wore the thin tie with the thin, He could have been a Rat Pack guy. Mad Sharp Manor. guy. And taught me how to dress, taught me what to wear, you know, everything like this. And he'd be shaving, you know, and I would open up a Bible that'd say Ezekiel 5.35. And the Lord said unto him, da, 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 you know, I'd say, okay. And I'd open it up and I'd say, okay, uh, Luke 3.19. And Jesus went into the thing like this. And I'd say, who plays bass for the animals? He goes, Chaz Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad said, I love the music. My dad was a big band guy, loved Sinatra and those guys. But he'd hear the Beatles and the Stones, and he says, it's blues, it's rock blues. Hmm. And I go, yeah, that's what it is. He says, great. He loved the bands. Come to see us play all the time. He, he says, now, understand that I love the music. I get your sense of humor. I get what Alice is. He said, totally, gets very clever. He says, the drugs, the alcohol, and sleeping with every girl in town. He said, I can't get behind that. So he was absolutely right. He said, I love the music, love the show. I know what you're doing. I get the, con the sense of humor, the, even, even the dark sense of humor, the horror and all that. He says, I, I don't find anything wrong with that. Hmm. He said, I find something wrong with the alcohol consumption. The fact that, you know, I mean, I was you're sleeping around. Yeah, well, yeah. I was sleeping around. And <coughs> he says, that, that's sinful. So let me ask this question. <clears throat> so that really is true. The rock rumors, right? That's kind of what you did. That's what everyone. Oh yeah, yeah. The <clears throat> the Hollywood version of what backstage is what happened in the '60s and '70s. Hmm. Now, when I give somebody a backstage pass, they go back there and they go, "It's a bunch of fat guys moving amps around <laughs> with spaghetti stains on their shirts. And there's no <laughs> naked girls running around, or you know." I said, "Yeah, I know." I said, "It's a business." Yeah. No, if you you know if you're go to a young punk thing it might not be all that going around yeah. the real bands the bands that are professional it's it's very professional uh you know it's makeup time this time this guy okay I'll let, we're gonna go over this over here the dancers you're all ready to go it's very professional hmm. I, and that's not just me that's the stones that's everybody hmm. uh but in the 70s yeah it was a party backstage was an insane party now when cheryl and i got married that was it I mean, I was true blue, never once cheated on her. On the road, she'd stay at home with the kids, you know, and everything, and, and I'd be out there on the road, but never once cheated on her. And uh, 
that was instilled in me still. You know, my, my grandparents were married 76 years. My parents were married 50 years. And Cheryl and I, Cheryl's dad is a Baptist pastor. So we're both PKs. We oh, both, you both had, had. Yeah. Oh, wow. So there was never, ever any mistrust in who we were. And now it's great because we go on tour together. Cheryl plays the insane nurse in the show. You saw the show. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and Calico, your oldest daughter. Calico plays in the show. Right? Uh, everybody in my family's been in the show. At one point, in fact, at some point, I had all three girls in the show. They played Chinese assassins, <laughs> you know, and they had like the black Chinese, you know, cocktail dress with the black. And each one, one had a machine gun, one had a, a switchblade, and all this. And, and during Halo Flies, they actually played Chinese assassins. And I'd look over and I'd see all my girls up there. I think this is great. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had Dash on stage before, doing yeah. different things. Yeah. Dash has his own band, you know, but. Um, we're still in church every Sunday when I'm on the road. The band knows uh, who I am in Christ. The band knows that, uh, you know, what I will do, what I won't do. The band knows that uh, what they can't do on the road. And, and these are the best guys. They wouldn't, anyway, nobody ever cheats on, on their mm -hmm. wives on our, on our tour. Uh, these guys are all really good guys. Hmm. But on stage, I mean, they look great. I mean, they look <laughs> like the hardest rock and roll guys you've ever seen backstage they're all the best guys you know that's, that's awesome. uh, and I find that I surround myself with people that are a quality people you know and that always works this there might be a better guitar player than that guy but that guy is a quality guy he's a quality person I want him in, in around me all the time I would just like to say a special thank you to Alice and Cheryl Cooper. They have been such a great supporter of Rule 29 and so gracious to uh, my family and I. Thank you, Alice and Cheryl, for letting us in your home and giving us the space to have this podcast. I know. I was just sitting there on the couch, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is Alice Cooper sitting right next to me. It was <laughs> unbelievable. Check out Alice's newest project, The Hollywood Vampires, which includes an awesome lineup of Johnny Depp and Joe Perivero Smith. We want to thank our sponsors for this episode, including O'Neill Printing and Rule 29 for giving us the space and platform to create this show. We also want to say a special thanks to Solid Rock. This is Alice Cooper's foundation, and this is actually where I met Alice. So to learn more about his foundation, how you can support it, go to alicecoopersolidrock.com. Wills, episode one of season two is done. Guys, we are so excited for season two. We have a couple really, really awesome shows to share with you. If you haven't listened to season one, please go back and listen to the first four episodes. Check us out at designofpodcast.com. So this season, we're planning on doubling the number of episodes. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at designofpodcast. Thanks so much, guys. We can't wait to show you what we've been working on. 